Welcome to this episode of CDM Media's Executive Insights. I'm your host, J.D. Miller. I had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Fissmeyer at our recent Bay Area Summit and look forward to sitting down with him again at our national summit in February. He's the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the U.S. National AI and Cybersecurity ISAL, CISO of Enjoy Technology, CEO of Allied Cyber Partners, and a member of the Overseas Security Advisory Council's Planning Committee for the country of Latvia. Mr. Thismeyer has served as a U.S. delegate expert on working groups of the International Standards Organization, the United Nations, and the U.S. Department of Commerce. He's contributed to more than 40 international cybersecurity standards, and his work has received numerous awards, including the Lawrence D. Eicher Award for Excellence in Technology. After the break, part of our discussion from the Bay Area Summit. So I want to dive first in. You know, we, we had the chance to talk um, leading up to today's event. And talk to me a little bit about this American Chambers of Commerce that, that you are so involved with right now. Okay, of course. So um, like uh, he actually said, I am part of an organization that is called an ISAO. ISAOs are non-governmental organizations that were set up under a presidential executive order. They are threat intelligence sharing organizations that sit between the public sector and the private sector to ensure that there is a better partnership, better information sharing happening. Uh, there's also like thought leadership, knowledge development, all this stuff. But as you've probably heard recently in the last two years, there is a push for what's called cyber diplomacy. Now, we are not the government. We are an NGO. So for us, the vector in order to talk to um, allied nations, businesses overseas that we're partnering with, the easiest vector to do that is through the uh, American Chambers of Commerce. And uh, we've built relationships with the uh, American Chambers of Commerce of almost every uh, country that borders with Russia, for example, all of Eastern Europe. And, and, and we've basically used that to partner with, with uh, those nations. So we, we talked ISAO. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about ISAO and, and um, <laughs> really what we're looking to accomplish there. Okay, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to build up partnerships that allow us uh, to kind of do collective defense, right? So the problem is, well, let's start simple. Cyber threats don't care about borders, right? And um, nobody sees the full picture of the situational awareness as it relates to cyber threats either. Everybody has their own little shared image piece. That's one problem. The other problem is there's only a certain amount of defenders available to protect all of our societies. Well, the problem here is very simple. We can't protect everything. So we have the critical infrastructure sector covered. There's programs so that, there's information exchange happening there, that's good. But the problem is we're having supply chain attacks and they might start and originate outside of the critical infrastructure sector. So there are government initiatives happening, of course, to start securing those supply chains. But at the same time, how are those businesses that are sitting on more and more data because proliferation of AI and ML and tools, which for the data models require large data sets, how are they supposed to protect themselves? Well, there are multiple strategies for that. The ISIO's role is in order to go in and provide them with threat intel, which, for example, smaller businesses, they can't hire a threat intel team, right? So we are going to step in and we're providing them with that information. We are also setting them up with relationships to actually be able to leverage incident response. Um, because, again, a CERT is a great thing when you're talking about critical infrastructure, but CERT can only do so many things as well, right? So that is the purpose of the ISAO. 
you, you've worked with a lot of different con- companies and countries out there. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the work you, you've recently done as, uh, with the Ministry of Justice at Lithuania. Hmm. Ministry of Justice in Lithuania, uh, we actually just held a, a, a series of events with them. So in, in that case, uh, they are trying to figure out actually something that we have to talk about later, which is what is the right relationship between um, legal practitioners, let's call it like that, because we're not only talking the legal department inside of companies, but we're also talking lawyers on the side of regulators and cybersecurity practitioners. How can this be leveraged in the best way? So we uh, held a series of events there and kind of briefed them on A, the geopolitical situation, cyber cyber threats and their challenges, cyber staffing challenges that I guess every single organization is facing at this point, and how to leverage that relationship best to drive forward change. You also work with the DOD in Latvia. Talk to me about that. It's basically the same type of setup. Of course, I can't go into greater detail there, but it always goes back to how do we facilitate threat intelligence sharing outside of the well-established channels that are not public, that are need-to-know only, and that can only share information between a very limited trusted network. So how do we start doing that? And actually, the topic of information sharing is huge right now because we are seeing that the classified information programs are turning actually into a barrier of sharing that critical information early and to the right people. Because what we found out, of course, is that we're dealing with a supply chain attack, right, that originates somewhere else. Well, I might already, not me, but an agency might already have a clear picture of what's happening, but there's a controlled release process for certain types of information. And if this business isn't vetted, if the people aren't vetted there, or God forbid, if it's a foreign business, then that can turn into a challenge. And in a perfect world, we all understand our supply chains and everything has been vetted, but uh, let's be honest, is that what's going to happen? No. You know, it's interesting too, because you know, dealing with com- countries like um, Latvia, Lithuania, you get a different perspective mm-hmm. of cyber awareness. Talk to me, what surprised you in dealing with these countries versus you know, how we operate here? Uh, so the first thing that stood out to me is, is, is when we're talking about the country of Estonia, Estonia is a highly digitalized nation. So they're actually very, very much aware of cyber threats and they have great education programs where this starts really, really early on in the education of a uh, citizen as they grow up, so to say. Like, I think they start their basic stuff in, 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 it would be middle school for us already, educating people. Um, Latvia, we were working on a program, but then the, uh, the pandemic actually happened but they wanted to set in kind of cyber-aware themes as early as elementary school. So you got to think about that. Now, are we doing this? No, we're not. So there's actually a lot more awareness, but the awareness comes because they are at the receiving ends of cyber attacks and disinformation attacks quite a bit. If you want to say it like this, the first event, major event, where disinformation and cyber were used to actually have a kinetic or a real-life e- effect that was massive, was actually in Estonia. It's called the Bronze Soldier Event, where Russia used disinformation tactics and cyber tactics in order to stage a riot in the uh, town of Tallinn, based on entirely, which is the capital, based on entirely fabricated information. Uh, so there are a lot at the receiving end of that, and that also helps with the actual uh, awareness, of course. When we look at the geopolitical climate, mm-hmm. 
you know, how complicated has it been to keep our organization safe, you know, since, you know, February, like we had discussed? <laughs> uh, how can I answer this question? I mean, it is, it is, I'm sorry, am I allowed to say the word mess? <laughs> you can it's say mess. It's a complete mess. I mean, what keeps CISOs awake at night, right? Um, where do we start with this? Okay, so there was a NATO, um, a NATO statistic. Actually, I don't think NATO created it, but I'm going to say NATO statistic. They quoted a research somewhere else. In the first half of 2021, there were more breaches than the entirety of 2020, for example. Now, leading up to the illegal invasion of Ukraine and during it, the amount of cyber attacks, and I think we can all see this in our own systems, just ballooned even more. And, and one reason of that, by the way, is, and I'm sure everybody is aware, that there is also a huge um, gray zone between state actor and cyber criminal, right? Like, cybercrime can be used to fund your covert operations, right? So there's a lot of overlap there as well. So you have all of this increase happening. At the same time, we are going to remote work. Um, from Enjoy's perspective, it, we already had a huge remote footprint, so this was already always an issue. Our attack surfaces are increasing. We have the increase on the attacker side with activities and cyber operations. And then we're starting to use AM, AI and ML everywhere and just sitting on huge amounts of growing, growing, growing data, which are of immense value to cyber criminals. I'm speaking mostly here to cyber people or people that at some point probably had a security background. We all know the ransomware as a service industry. Um, when you tell to non-security people about this, how much they're set up like an entire business world, like ecosystem. It, people don't believe you. Oh, yeah, they have access brokers. They will sit like for six months, one year inside of your systems. They will try to broker the access. They have coders. They have entire like IT organizations and everything. How are we dealing with this? It is very, very complex. And, and then we are supposed to keep track of where our data sits in all, through all of this. Um, data inventories, everybody happy with their data inventories? All up to date, right? <laughs> yeah. No worries, I'm not going to ask anybody directly, but we all know the reality. So then the question is how do we solve this? You know, when you look at ransomware as a service, and it's, <laughs> you know, what's going through, and it's not millions of dollars, it's billions and trillions of dollars in ransomware as a service, you know, that's going to continue to grow. Yeah. You know, how much, how, how scary, you talk about things keeping uh, CISOs up at night, you know, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, of course, it's a, it's, it's, it's a giant thing. Also because, of course, when you do get to interface with the CEO, what's on their mind? Well, ransomware is all over the news, so that's what they're coming with, to you with, and they're asking, like, how are we secure about, uh, again, how are we secured against ransomware attacks? Well, you might be able to give a good answer, a quick answer, but specifically if you haven't invested into certain type of technologies, given, again, the challenges we have for remote work and all this stuff, do you really know that you have control over all of the different assets? Do you know what, all, what your assets are? How many shadow assets might be sitting in your org that you're not aware of that just give a vector for somebody to come in, move laterally, and then do all the stuff that we're all very much aware of? I want to dive into zero trust here in a minute, but before I do that, you know, from a global and geopolitical standpoint, talk to me about the role of cyber diplomacy today and how cyber diplomacy has evolved. Well, so how it has evolved, it was always very interesting for me because like um, you were made aware of, I was actually working for the International Standards Organization. And I think the Department of State, I love them, but I think they were a little bit late on that because you had all of these diverse forums. And when you're looking at the ISO, 
you are noticing, okay, certain companies are sitting in there, Microsoft, and they, of course, have delegates spread out into all these different countries as well. They're all attending. You have the countries sitting in there. You have people from intelligence agencies sitting in there. You have NGOs sitting in there and a lot of, like, you know, NIST and, and whoever. Then you go from an ISO meeting, you go into a different type of forum, let's say the United Nations Regulatory Framework Drafting Group. Yeah, I think that's, I'm actually, how do I remember that name? I'm not, that's amazing. Anyways, so you're sitting in there and it's like the same people again. You're like, okay. Then you go into a different event, NATO CCD COE, Cyber Corporate Defense Center of Excellence. Whoever came up with this acronym has a problem. Sorry, I have to say that. Why not something simple? Anyways, so you're sitting in there and it's the same people walking in again and you're just, okay, we have a nexus here. If this was an Intel operation, somebody would be really, really concerned because you're all decision makers. You're all doing things that turn into standards, regulations, whatever, that then Deloitte audit people against or whoever else. And it's the same people and there's no control over this. There's no strategy. So we went from there, from that Wild West, a little bit to more getting guided. So you have the Department of State that started offer, uh, opening a, uh, I don't know how they, how they called it, cyber diplomacy office. You're having uh, usually uh, people assigned at the embassies that own the cyber portfolio and all this stuff. So it's becoming a lot more structured. But the problem with that, of course, is also you have a new actor, a new organization saying, okay, well, we now officially own this. But you have all of these giant organizations, all of these already existing bodies that wield all the influence. So it's going to be interesting to see how this will turn out. Why is this important? Well, let's talk about China's national security strategy. Um, there's like, uh, if you look at a report of the Special Competitive Studies Project, that's a US project that came out of the National Security Commission for AI. There is like several pillars that China's global strategy is built on. And one of those pillars is called setting the rules of the game. And that is norms and standardization. And I lived and observed China's rise in the ISO, and it was very deliberate. Deliberate, And you could see that they had the strategy from the get-go. They would show up in meetings. At first, they would send 200 delegates, which is massive, like the UK has six. And they would sit in every single project that SC27, which is what gives you the ISO 27000 standard, they would sit in every single project. And for two years, they just listened take pictures, listen, start meeting people, didn't do anything else. And then year three, they played their hand. Now imagine this, how do you, I don't want to go too much into standards development, but how do you actually influence standards? By making comments and contributions. If you have 200 people sitting in this org, you can make a lot of, of contributions. You can make a lot of comments. And if you diverse, uh, diversify them across individual organizations, each of those organizations has a vote about comment acceptance. So that's how you start dominating standards. So actually I went to an ISO summit in Wuhan in 2018. And um, it was very, very interesting because Wuhan hosts the uh, National Security Technology Center, I think is what they call it, or complex. And it is set up to house almost 200,000 people. And they gave us a tour of that and it was, it was, it was very much I'm not going to say that it was already, uh, what's it called? Um, how did they call the new style of diplomacy? Tiger diplomacy, wolf diplomacy, I thought wolf warrior, wolf warrior, wolf warrior. Yeah. It wasn't yet as aggressive, but you could very much see that they were showing us like, this is what we're building. 
know where you are at. And even the, the language style changed so much during the events we were having. The first talk was held by a, a lovely gentleman from Germany. It was very soft, very nice. And suddenly the Chinese administrator of cyberspace, which is kind of like the guy in charge of all cyber things, stepped on stage and echo and reverb were added to the microphone. And it sounded like Zeus speaking to you from <laughs> Mount Olympus, echoing through the halls. And yeah, very interesting. Anyways, yeah. So let's look at framework, right? And zero trust is mm -hmm. a journey um, that a lot of organizations are on, but not as many organizations as you, as you would think. Um, a, a study came out that 62, I think, is the, the percentage mm -hmm. of organizations having started their zero trust journey. Does that surprise you? Yeah, it does surprise me because um, given the realities, I, I, I don't really know how they, I mean, okay, so defining zero trust is a, is a self-issue, an issue. We're, we're not going to get into this here. But I wonder whether they either have embarked partially on a part of the zero trust journey and they actually just are not aware of that, or um, I'm concerned for their security posture, given the fact that everybody's working remotely, that we're sitting on data, given the requirements that are coming up, that we're seeing in new regulations that are being proposed and new standards that are being proposed, I, I would expect there to be a delta between security posture and those requirements. And actually, um, I'm involved in a scientific literature, literature review that is still ongoing, uh, that is hosted by a small university over in Latvia. And um, I can definitely say that there is a huge delta between security posture and, and, and what people should have in place, for sure. As far as the individual's zero trust journey, mm -hmm. um, I always like to ask the question, and, and I've had John Kindervag, um, the, the father of zero trust on, on our advisory council and, and joining us you know, recently, Dr. Um, Chase Cunningham spoke at, at uh, a conference we had in New York. Talk to me. I want to start on my zero trust journey. Where do I start? Framing the problem. Now, I have to say, I was super lucky at Enjoy. I started with ground zero. So everybody from a you know, change management perspective, talking perspective, they were expecting me to come up with solutions, architecture designs, all this kind of stuff. It's a lot easier to do that when there's nothing in place or little than when you already have a full-blown tech stack. Because how are you framing this conversation? How are you having this in first place? Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to switch? You're not going to have a conversation with like a CEO or a non-technology person about the fact that the old security mo perimeter model is dead unless you want to give them a networking class before that, right? So you have to really start, in my case, it was, it was, it was, we have a lot of business with telcos that have very succinct security standards. And I started with how do we know what data we have, where it sits, and how do we protect it? That was the first line that I came up with. And I pulled one of the requirements out of one of our contracts and said, we got to do DLP. Okay, in our scenario, how do we enforce DLP how do we even know where stuff sits? And that was just how I managed that particular conversation and how I started with knowing where your assets are, knowing what data you have, and how do you protect it when it's, being, when it's in transfer. So when we look at framing the problem, mm -hmm. um, there's new things that continue to pop up that are, are challenges. We talked from a geopolitical standpoint. Talk to me, you know, you and I actually had a really good conversation where AI is playing in, in all this. And talk to me about AI being you know, uh, an emerging problem. <clears throat> well, with great power comes great risk. So, okay, we want to use AI for our chatbots more. We want to use AI for God knows what, doesn't matter. 
Um, we are going to adopt the use of AI more and more. We're using more AI and more ML. It goes back to the point, we're sitting on more and more data. How are we going to protect this increasing volume of information? So if you're trying to frame that challenge, it's, hey, we, we have excellent business cases for more adoption of AI and ML throughout the company, but this means our risk exposure is dramatically increasing. So in order to adjust to this new reality, to get back to our initial risk acceptance statement, be in line with that, what can we do to do that? And again, it comes down to then at that point, also having the conversation that I'm having limited resources. I need to do automated threat detection response unless you want to start giving me a full sock or something like that. So then you can come up and say like, hey, and I call it Nexus strategy at Enjoy. If we're doing this, if we are, and it was multiple solutions, I'm not going to name them because if we are doing this, I am able to do threat detection response on our assets, EDR, XDR. I'm able to do real-time context-aware, and I'm not going to say it's, it was perfect. No, it was not. Real-time context-aware authentication authorization. And I'm going to be able to see all the traffic. I'm, I can scan it, and I can start doing all of the asset detection, what's on the assets, cl start classifying data that's on there. Just that, like just being able to go in and say, hey, there's solutions that allow you to automatically detect data and classify it for you is a massive game because nobody wants to maintain data inventories. Nobody wants to maintain even network diagrams, right? So that's, that's an easy way to say we are we're having cost reduction happening as well. Yeah, I, I like, you know, with, with great power, great risk. So our, our security executives are basically Spider-Men out there, right? Yes. <laughs> Superheroes. Um, talk to me, you know, here we, we've got a, another event going on around the data end of things. The evolving relationship between the security executive and the data executive in how they're not as aligned as they need to be today. Yeah, so actually I had a great conversation right before uh, this meeting with somebody who was a data owner. And, and I, think, I think we need to get together a lot and be a lot closer with them because they, they're sitting on all of this data suddenly and they're being given accountability for it that's now formally assigned as well. It's no longer just like, hey, your business ops, business apps manager. No, 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 you are a data owner you're going to be answering questions while we're sitting in audit meetings and all that good stuff. So they're feeling, I think, left alone a little bit sometimes, depending on, of course, if you're a mature organization, you have all of this already figured out. So I think one of the things that I did is, is we, we, we started this internal coalition in the company. And, and I really say that that's also good for the government's perspective. I'm not going to go into detail because we're going to talk about this later on. And, and I pulled in data owners that had the problem, that had this new accountability, which made them easy to access for me. And I pulled in legal and compliance. We said, like, okay, this is the new world, and regulations are going to increase. How can I help you be a better owner and steward of data? And how can I get you reduce the time that you need to spend on those new tasks that have been given to you so you can actually go back to what you like to do, which is like, you know, build BI systems and generate intelligence for the business to make better decisions. Uh, as well, you, you mentioned expanding. Who, as I'm building my, my Zero Trust framework and, and my organization, who should I have involved that probably isn't involved today within my teams? Ooh, that's an excellent question because obviously you want to have a good team but not too broad of a team. So from my perspective, uh, of course, you've got to have your technology stakeholders on board, biz apps and all this kind of stuff. You have to bring legal on board. You have to bring compli business compliance can be a massive 
benefit as well to have them in that conversation. And then I would actually say between beyond IT, look at your COO or somebody that is reporting to them in the organization that has ops responsibility. Because this was in our case, um, they have growth plans. And we had a, like I said, a diverse physical footprint. Now, I called, I said we had a lot of remote footprint. The reason was that our physical locations were very low-tech locations. So it's not worth to put like some giant security solution into this area, into, into this place. But they're untrusted networks and you need to know what's happening on them because if the asset gets compromised there, they're accessing your systems, lateral movement, blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was, it was, it was a benefit to talk to operations and biz dev and say like, hey, you have these growth plans. You want to add, I don't know, 100 locations by the end of the year. Let's talk about how we can make this happen in a secure and compliant way and how we can actually make the job of maintaining networks and all this kind of stuff. You work with IT, stability, how can we make all of this better? That was our scenario. I don't think there's a perfect answer, actually. So. Yeah, we all went remote work. Some of us are still remote. Raise your hand if you're remote or hybrid working. Oh, Nearly the entire room. Yeah. How much did this work environment set us back in our zero trust journeys? Because the, the BYOD, you know, networks that aren't secure, um, how, how much did this set us back, do you think? So that's actually a very, very interesting question. I'm not 100% sure it necessarily set us like back. Because I used it actually to drive change, to get more budget, to get more momentum, and use this, 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 this calamity that has befallen us as an opportunity to drive forward. Um, of course, if you're talking about uh, just, just resource allocation, yeah, it, 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 it delayed all of my projects by like, you know, nearly a year and set me back. And then, then, then we came back with a vengeance, so to say. But, but I, 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 yeah, I don't know how to answer this question better. Yeah. Talk to me. I love looking into the crystal ball. And I want to answer this question in two different ways. One from a geopolitical standpoint and one in just our organizations. Mm. If we're going to be sitting here in five years mm. from a security standpoint, let, let's start with our companies and then we'll talk geopolitical. But yeah. what is the conversation going to be like in five years when we're talking security? You're talking to a seesaw. We're <laughs> very pessimistic right now, okay? <laughs> Do you really want me to answer this question? <laughs> More of the same, worse catastrophe, <laughs> data breaches everywhere. No, 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 no. Um, so I was actually really thinking about this when you asked me that yesterday when we prepped, like, hey, I'm going to ask you this question. What do you think about this? So yes, we will have more of the same. But I think when we're talking about the journey, I think we will see higher adoption just based on the fact that the regulatory requirements are increasing based on the fact that, for example, right, we need to make this SEC attestation at the end of the year now about the maturity security program and whatnot. And I think it's really, really hard to meet all of those upcoming requirements in a scalable way without embarking on this journey. So I would hope that we've gotten further along. I think the solutions will morph a little bit as well. Um, you know, in the Zero Trust framework, you're supposed to have this like controller that sits there. Well, we didn't really have that. We had like a patchwork of solutions that each were their nexuses assigned to a specific thing that cybersecurity wanted to do. Then behind the scenes, we brought together the, the, we brought together the uh, information and started like building our own rule engine kind of on top of that. I would assume that we see better integration between vendors, and I would, see, I would assume that we're also seeing kind of a, a, a convergence happening by acquisitions and whatnot. And people are 
Like, I mean, you can see this with some vendors already, like whether you're looking at Zscaler or whether you're looking at CrowdStrike, which is an XDR, but they're investing heavily into asset discovery. They're starting to invest heavily into vulnerability management, and they're starting to invest into the integration with tools like Zscaler to be better in control of the network stack as, as well. So. And we'll be completely fully staffed. The whole skill oh, yeah, shortage yeah, yeah, and yeah. cyber is taken care of. Uh, well, you know, the skill shortage we probably have fixed by the end of the year, right? So, <laughs> which I think there's a lot that flows into that. Some people say there's no skill shortage. There is no talent gap. Really? I, yeah, it's being said. So I, I, I was part, like when I said DOC or when Department of Commerce, right, has NIST, NICE, the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education. I will say there's, there's absolutely a, a talent gap and there's a workforce shortage for certain. Some countries are worse off than other countries, that's for sure. But I would say that this definitely exists. But I will also say there is, there's a problem, again, where HR doesn't understand the information security function yet good enough. And you see, and I'm not going to name the organization, I've seen for years an organization in the Bay Area post a, um, a, a job uh, description for CISO. And it is, I don't know how many pages long, of certifications the person's supposed to have, technologies they're supposed to be working with, and all this stuff. And I'm like, if, if you were to find this person, this person is asking for, guaranteed for a seven-figure salary and, and, and beyond that. But the org, and i got to be careful to not expose it, is actually kind of, it's not a, I don't think it's actually like a public organization, but it's kind of towards that. And, and, and the pay is, 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 is really, really low for Bay Area standards to begin with. It was, it was, it was, I think they were saying it topped out at like 130 or 140,000. Mm. For that type of background, I, I, I'm like, okay, I know why you haven't found anyone yet. Like, nobody's going to fit this bill. If they do fit this bill, they're sitting somewhere in Dubai working for shikes and, 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 and have no problem, nothing to worry about. <laughs> I, I want to go back where we started to, to, to wrap up. You know, that five year, that looking at crystal ball mm. from a global cybersecurity standpoint. You know, to, to kind of go back to conversations you're having with these different organizations mm -hmm. and ministries of, of defense and whatnot. Um, where are we going to be? Actually, uh, that is a positive story, really. I think so. Um, we will see better coordination. I'm very, very sure about this based on all of the things that are in, in, in place and that are being done. And I think we are starting to, you know, the term that the government was used was forward posture. I think we start to get more proactive. Uh, just today in the morning, you probably saw like a giant network of denial of service attack providers got disrupted. So we're starting being proactive with disrupting these organizations. This brings its own challenges, right? Um, because, because how do you do proper attribution? How do you know that when you're going after a network like that, you're not affecting necessarily the infrastructure provider, for example? Right, like, uh, oh, I got an IP address on there. Okay, cool. I'm going to go and counter hack or do whatever. Oops, it's, it's actually AWS. Oh, what did I just do right now? Right, like, mm. it's, that, of course, it's a dramatization and extreme example, but all of these things exist in real life and, and, and they will impact that as well. But I do think that this will become better, but it's going to get worse first. 100% comments of that. Um, as this conflict goes on and changes in nature, I think we will see more pressure being exerted by some of the combatants onto our societies. And in lieu of full-blown direct confrontation, one way of achieving that is, of course, measures like cyber, soft power, and, and disinformation, all this stuff. I think this will increase. 
initially before it gets better. Wonderful. Well, thank yeah, you sorry. so much. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Michael. It's been great sure. hearing you. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Executive Insights. You can see Michael live on stage at our upcoming flagship summit in Arizona, February 6th and 7th. For more information, reach out to marketing at cdmmedia.com. Thanks for listening.